0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com ETFprime. That's fooletfs.com ETFprime.
2: All right. Joining me will be Alexandra Russo, head of ESG client portfolio management for the U.S. with Candrium, who if you're not familiar with Candrium, they're a nearly $160 billion global asset manager and a pioneer in leader in sustainable investing. Now, if you listen to the podcast last week, you know, one of the key takeaways I had from the recent uh, Inside ETFs conference was that the discussion around ESG investing uh, has turned much more practical, I, I feel like we're moving beyond this huge marketing push with ESG, and instead focusing on what ESG is, and what it isn't and what it can and can't do for investors. And I'll tell you, Alexandra, in my mind, is a perfect messenger on that sort of approach because she's clearly an ESG expert. You're going to hear that immediately. But I feel like she takes a much more pragmatic stance when it comes to ESG. And she's really focused on understanding and leveraging ESG data is part of the overall investment process. And so we're gonna have a full conversation around that. Uh, I'm sure I will have some of my uh, usual ESG rebuttals because I can't help myself, but I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Alexandra. And she's also going to discuss why she doesn't believe ESG is a political issue, uh, which again, I think gets back into the data itself. So it should be a great conversation. Now to start this week, Just about every quarter, I'm now joined by our resident energy expert, Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Betify. I'll tell you, this has quickly become one of my favorite segments because the energy sector, it just wasn't something I covered much at all previously. And I feel like every time Stacy joins me, I learn something new. I said this last time uh, when she joined me, I truly think she's forgotten more about the energy space than I know altogether. And so this week, we're going to look at the recent performance of the energy sector. We'll talk some uh, energy ETFs and also find out what Stacy is watching for uh, moving forward, including the impact of ESG initiatives on energy companies. So let's do that now. Now,
1: we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time.
3: 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know They're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends.
2: Stacy, great having you back on the podcast.
3: It's so great to be with you, Nate. Thanks for having me.
2: All right, so look, you joined me about three months ago, and we talked about how after a, a stellar 2022, energy had been lagging so far this year. And so I went back and reran some of the numbers over the weekend. And as I'm sure you're aware, energy is currently the worst performing sector in the S&P 500. And not only that, there's an over 40% gap between energy and the top performing sector, which, of course, is tech. And so to start this week, I'd love to have you just talk about what's been going on with energy over the uh, the past three months, and has anything meaningfully changed since we last spoke?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, there has been some, some changes. I think, you know, more broadly, it feels like energy and tech move in opposite directions. Um, last year, you know, let's not forget the energy did really well, and tech was not great. Um, but now, you know, tech has the hot hand, and energy is bumping. Um, but when we talked last, energy wasn't doing so that bad. It was lagging, but it wasn't bad. Um, and that was kind of the calm before the storm. Um, oil prices were remarkably steady between $75 and $80 a barrel from about mid-November to early March when we talked. And then, you know, in mid-March, you had the banking crisis really come to the forefront And that set off significant fears about the economy, a recession, and just led to risk-off sentiment in the market, which put pressure on oil prices and on energy stocks as well. Um, So you actually saw broader energy trade pretty in line with banks, which was kind of interesting. Um, Energy companies generally had a good earnings season. Producers are still making good money at these commodity prices. Um, But the macro concerns have really been dominating how the equities trade.
2: You mentioned the banking crisis. Can you talk a little bit more about how that regional banking crisis has impacted some energy stocks? Because I'm not sure that that's necessarily uh, an intuitive connection for for some investors. Does it come down just to potential contagion there and, and concerns over the economy as a whole, or is there more to it than that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it is largely concerns about the economy. I mean, both are cyclical, both are value-oriented, and they're sensitive to the outlook for the economy. And I think you know, there is an element of concern that the banking crisis would tip us into a recession, which would be bad for oil prices and bad for energy. Um, you know, for energy stocks, the concern is you know, what may happen to oil demand and therefore oil prices if we do see a recession. And so you, know, you saw that similarity. I think it was surprising to a lot of investors. But it is largely because they're both sensitive to the outlook for the economy.
2: Stacy, if we drill down a little bit, has there been anything within the energy space that is working? I, I know last time you highlighted MLPs and an ETF like the Ilarian MLP, ETF ticker AMLP. I believe we also talked uh, oil services. So an ETF like the Vanek Oil Services ETF ticker OIH. But again, I looked over the uh, weekend, AMLP is is certainly still hanging in there performance-wise, but OIH is now down about 15% year-to-date. So is it just MLPs that are actually performing now?
3: Yeah, so in short, it is MLPs that are really kind of the bright spot in the energy complex. Um, If you look at what happened with oil field services, the bull story kind of when we talked earlier this year was that These companies were seeing strong demand for their services, and their margins were expanding. Um, Most energy sectors were expected to see a worse 2023, uh, mainly because of lower commodity prices and because of just how strong 2022 was. But oil field services was unique in that they were actually expected to see kind of a positive rate of change for earnings this year. Um, So this oil field service space actually started the year pretty well, and then Oil field services got hit when oil prices sold off on the banking crisis. So much like oil and gas producers, oil field service companies can be sensitive to what happens with the commodity. Um, And then also, if you fast forward a bit to to earlier this month on 1Q earnings calls, you had producers talking about how wealth costs were starting to plateau. So the kind of bull case for oil field service, unfortunately, got Kind of caught up in the, the weakness in commodity prices and now oil field services are you know underperforming energy broadly if you look at like the xle for example um, on the other hand you know mlps have been resilient um, again really kind of the only energy space with portion of the energy space with notable gains um, the allarian mlp infrastructure index which underlies amlp that you mentioned it's up about seven percent on a total return basis year to date through friday um, and some of that has to do with the fact that these companies are operating fee-based businesses. They generate more stable cash flows. Uh, midstream names were expected to largely see modest EBITDA growth this year instead of EBITDA declines like other energy sectors. Um, but that total return number also benefits from generous MLP yields, which were at a, right at 8% as of Friday. Um, so that's helped. And then earlier this month, MLPs got a boost when uh, OneNote announced that it was acquiring Magellan Midstream Partners. Uh, the deal there included a 22% premium and Magellan tends to be a large name in MLP indexes. So it saw a nice, you know, kind of pop on that announcement. Um, and then some other MLPs also traded up in, in kind of sympathy after that announcement. So. MLPs were outperforming before the Magellan one Oak deal was announced, but that performance difference between broader energy has become kind of more pronounced over the last couple weeks following that deal announcement.
2: Yeah, and just for comparison, you mentioned AMLP up about 7% this year. I should have noted this earlier. So the Energy Select Sector spider ETF ticker XLE, which I was obviously referencing in terms of the energy sector in the S&P 500, that's down 9%. Year to date, of course, the S and P 500, an ETF like SPY, that's up a little over a 10 percent total return. Um, Stacy, with MLPs in particular, you know, I just noted the S and P 500. Some investors may not be aware that MLPs aren't in the S and P 500, and so if you want exposure, you may have to go out and get it. Right. Uh, And and so I'd love to have you explain why that might make sense. And I I get that MLPs are having a pretty good year this year. So you know, that alone may make some sense. But give me the case for proactively tracking down MLP exposure uh, in a portfolio. Why own this from more of a uh, longer term standpoint?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right. If if you want to own this space, you kind of have to go out and look for it. It's probably not something you're going to get exposure to otherwise. Um, but MLPs are usually excluded from broad market indexes because they issue K-1s for tax purposes. Um, And so that tax treatment is what kind of keeps them out of those indexes, but it's also what can make MLPs very desirable. Um, They're pass-through entities, they pay generous dividends, and a portion of those dividends are typically tax-deferred. So most people come to the MLP space for that tax-advantaged income, um, and of course, people can consult with their tax advisor for for more details on that. But you know the tax advantage income and the p- potential for tax deferral of that income is you know the primary benefit and, and the main reason that people are usually attracted to this space, but there's other benefits as well. Um, as you mentioned, it's not in these broad in- market indexes, so there's some diversification benefits. Um MLPs tend to have a lower correlation with other income investments like utilities and bonds. so not only can you enhance the yield of an income portfolio, I mentioned MLP is yielding about 8%, but you also offer some good diversification to some of your other kind of income standbys. Um, and then it's also a good space for people who are worried about inflation. Um, these companies provide real asset exposure. Their contracts typically include annual inflation adjustments. So this is a space that we can you know, see do well when we have high inflation like we saw in 2021 and 2022. And then then finally, it's also more defensive energy exposure. So people will look to MLPs or midstream if they want energy exposure, but maybe they're worried about commodity prices or they're worried about a recession and they want to be, you know, a little more defensively positioned. So... Uh, to kind of sum that up, you know, the tax-advantaged income is usually what people come to the MLP space for, but there are other benefits as well and, and other ways that you can use it in portfolios.
2: Yeah, and, of course, we're obviously seeing that more defensive uh, energy position out of MLPs this year. It's the perfect example. Again, I mentioned XLE down, you know, whatever, 9%. Well, an ETF like AMLP is up 7%. Um, if, if we look more broadly at the energy ETF space? Besides MLP ETFs and then, say, OIH, which I mentioned, and and XLE, are there any other energy-related ETFs that are standing out to you this year, whether good or bad?
3: Yeah, I would say there's not a lot really standing out. Um, The strength is actually fairly isolated to the MLP space. Even if you look at RIC-compliant ETFs that are typically 25% MLPs and 75% midstream C-Corps, those are more flattish this year. Um, The underlying index for the Eulerian Energy Infrastructure ETF, ticker ENFR, is down 1% on a total return basis through Friday. Um, So you're still seeing broader midstream you know, outperform broader energy as represented by the XLE, but it's still, you know, not as stronger, as maybe compelling a story as what we're seeing from MLP so far.
2: Yeah, and I still can't get over that uh, performance gap that I mentioned earlier. I know it's a, a little cliche, and to your point that, you know, typically when tech performs really well, perhaps energy isn't. But you look at an ETF like XLK, that's up over 32% this year just for comparison. So I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens the remainder of the year. There's a lot of talk right now just about the top heaviness of some of the broad indexes and and mega cap growth leading the way. It'll just be interesting to see what happens on the energy side of the equation. And I guess on that note, well, let's spend a few minutes uh, looking forward like we always do and uh, discuss the outlook for oil and natural gas prices because of course, those prices can help drive energy-related ETFs, and so I'm curious as you look at both of those, uh, give us a quick a quick snapshot. Uh, wh- wh- what are you watching for? What could be some key drivers the rest of the year?
3: Yeah, so you know, from an oil perspective, in the near term, you know, we'll be looking for updates out of the OPEC Plus meeting on June 4th. Um, last week, Saudi's energy mis- minister was sending signals um, and like warnings to speculators implying uh, that they may do a cut, but then, you know, Russia was talking down the potential of more cuts. So we'll keep an eye on things there um, from an OPEC plus perspective. Uh, also keeping an eye on demand trends, looking for any signs of weakness due to the economy, um, or even, you know, surprise pockets of strength coming out of China, coming from international travel, those sorts of things. Uh, and then, you know, so far this year, Russian exports have been really resilient. So that's the other kind of variable to, to keep an eye on. I think those have per- surprised to the upside. Um, but, you know, big picture for this year, I think people expect the market to get tighter as the year goes on and as we get into 2024, um, barring, you know, a, a severe recession. So I think that's what we'll kind of be looking for and, and seeing if that plays out. Um, On the natural gas side, you may get some help um, if we see a hot summer here, but the general view is that natural gas probably doesn't get better until we start to see some LNG export capacity come online next year in the U.S. Um, The natural gas rate count in the U.S. has come down lately, so producers are responding to lower prices, which is what they should be doing. Um, So that can help kind of directionally in terms of kind of cleaning up the the supply-demand picture there. But... Generally, you know, people aren't, aren't too constructive on, t- on natural gas until we get into kind of next year. Um, so that's kind of, you know, things to keep watching for. I think um, big picture, you know, both oil and natural gas have the potential to kind of get better from here. Um, but I think in the near term, we're probably going to see some more volatility just given ongoing headlines in, in the energy space. So... Um, I guess I would say I'm a little cautious on the near term and then um, more constructive as, as time goes on.
2: I try to learn something new from you every time you're on this podcast. And of course, we uh, we, we just wrapped up Memorial Day weekend. The summer's now kicked off. And you mentioned with that Gas that maybe a really hot summer uh, c- could help prices. I, I feel like that's something investors may see in, in the news and in headlines. Like how big of a driver could that really be? If we have a, a brutally hot, Summer, how much could that impact demand on the Nat Gas side?
3: I mean, it can help a lot in terms of kind of uh, working down inventories and just cleaning things up a little bit because we have been so oversupplied. Um, I think we may have talked about it. This winter was surprisingly warm, um, and that really put a quick damper on natural gas prices. They went from, you know, well over $5 in kind of no- November, December to you know, falling below $2. So if we see, you know, really hot summer, I think that can help. But it's also kind of coming into the summer with high inventories, ample supply, uh, ample production. So it, it would have to probably be pretty, pretty hot to, um, you know, see a really significant price move in natural
2: gas. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. I prefer things to be a little more mild uh, than the you know 100 degree heat, especially with where I'm at. Uh, Stacy, just a few minutes left before I let you go. Uh, you heard at the top, I'll be visiting here momentarily with Alexandra Russo from Candrium. And we are going to talk ESG, which of course, the E in ESG stands for environmental and gets into things like the uh, carbon footprint of companies. Now, full disclosure, I know you and I could do literally an entire podcast or two uh, on this topic, but I haven't asked you before. And so I'm just curious how you view this uh, initiative to transition to net zero and the potential longer term impact to the traditional energy companies that you and I discussed. Do you, do you view ESG initiatives as sort of a threat to the traditional energy sector?
3: Well, so to your point there's a lot to unpack here. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, But I think what you mentioned at the top of the show is really important, is that you have to kind of ground this in, you know, a practical discussion and what's really happening. So I think renewables and alternative energy are going to play a growing role in the energy mix. There will be a lot more solar and wind power generation, more electric vehicles. And I think we can probably all agree on that to some degree, Um, but I think where everybody disagrees is the timeline for these events and just when and how much fossil fuel demand will decline. Um, If you look at 2021, so pre the invasion of Ukraine, fossil fuels accounted for 82% of global primary energy use, and fossil fuels have been about 80% of the global energy mix for decades. So renewables are growing, and they're growing tremendously, but it's off of a low base. Um, So to this point, we haven't really seen a significant displacement of fossil fuels because just total global energy use has been growing. Um, And I really like to use coal as an example. I would guess most people don't realize that coal consumption in 2021 was the highest that it's been since 2014 or that coal accounts for about 36 percent of global power generation. Um, So coal is still a huge part of our energy mix, even though it's by far the most villainized fossil fuel. So I think the resiliency of coal demand just shows that switching energy sources is not quick, it's not easy. Um, and broadly, you know, the world continues to face what people call this energy trilemma, um, And that's essentially the need for secure, affordable, and low-carbon energy. So to me, if the world is going to solve that problem uh, you know, globally, it's not just the U.S. or Europe problem, right? We also have to think about people in developing countries. Um, I think we're going to need both alternative energy and fossil fuels produced in a more responsible manner, and I think we're going to need those you know, fossil fuels produced in a responsible manner for years and years. Um, so, to your question, yes, you know, ESG and, and net zero are a threat to traditional fossil fuels over time. Um, but I think people tend to overestimate the timing and the magnitude of that threat. And we should also note that you know, energy companies are focused on ESG as well. You know, they're a handful of midstream companies, for example, that have net zero targets by 2050. So, you know, energy companies are not aloof to what's going on. um, And several of them are investing in alternative energies. And I think people tend to kind of forget that.
2: I'm really glad. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm actually glad that you mentioned that last point, because I've talked a lot about this, that if you look at a company, say, like, I I don't know, Exxon, uh, they, they are making an effort in this space, and they are looking at alternatives. Uh, To traditional fossil fuels and I I think there's a number of energy companies that are trying to lead the charge here, but to your point, this transition doesn't happen overnight. And I just always find it interesting that you have companies uh, in the energy space that are working on renewables that are actually excluded from ESG. Uh, ETFs and ESG indexes. It's, it's just such an interesting thing to me. But I I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounds like in summary, and I know you're not here to make investment calls, but you don't really see this as a, a huge threat to the traditional energy sector. If, if I'm an investor proactively allocating to, I, I don't know, an ETF like XLE, it doesn't sound like you see this as any sort of big threat, at least in the, the short to intermediate term. Is, is that fair?
3: Yeah, I would say I don't think it's a threat in the short term. Um, I think it is a longer term threat. But if you are investing in something like that, um, you know, it just bears mentioning that Exxon is huge in carbon capture. You know, Chevron is... Uh, making investments in, you know, hydrogen and renewable fuels, Exxon also. Um, so these companies are doing a lot on that front. It just doesn't tend to get noticed. Um, and so from that standpoint, yes, I, I don't think it's you know, something that an XLE investor needs to be worried about today.
2: Well, Stacey, always a pleasure. I know I say this every time, but nobody covers the energy space better than you do. Thank you for joining me this oh. week.
3: <laughs> no, thanks for having me, Nate. It's always a pleasure.
2: That was Stacey Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. Critical minerals like lithium, copper,
1: uranium, and nickel are in high demand and short supply, but they're critical to the accelerating transition to cleaner energy. Find out how Sprott's suite of energy transition ETFs can help you access a potentially powerful opportunity. Visit SprottETFs.com to learn more past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Asset allocation or diversification does not guarantee investment returns and does not eliminate the risk of loss. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein from Sprott Asset Management USA Inc., Sprott Asset Management LP, Sprott Inc., or any other spot entity or affiliate. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of writing. Still, no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. The information provided is general in nature and is provided with the understanding that it may not be relied upon as nor considered to be the rendering of tax, legal, accounting, or professional advice. Listeners should consult their own accountants and or lawyers for advice on their specific circumstances before taking any action. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high conviction stock picks from real professional analysts it puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com etfprime ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com etfprime ETF Prime.
2: I'm now joined by Alexandra Russo, head of ESG Client Portfolio Management for the US with Candrium, who's a nearly $160 billion global asset manager, and a recognized pioneer and leader in sustainable investing. Now, as part of that, Candrium actually powers several Index IQ ESG ETFs, including the IQ Candrium ESG US Large Cap Equity ETF, ticker symbol IQSU, And the IQ Candrium ESG International Equity ETF, ticker IQSI, which we will spend a few minutes looking at the strategies uh, underpinning those ETFs. Uh, Alexandra is now on the line with me from London. Alexandra, it's a a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Good morning, Nate. Um, Thank you so much for having me and good afternoon from London. Happy to be here today.
2: All right. So as you may or may not be aware, ESG is actually one of my favorite topics to cover just because it seems to uh, generate so much passion and debate. And we're certainly going to get into that side of the story here. But I want to start (laughs) with Candrium because I mentioned you are a leader in sustainable investing. But my sense is that some investors... Uh, may not be familiar with Kendrium, despite the fact that you do oversee some $160 billion in assets. So just tell us a little bit more about the firm and specifically as it pertains to the uh, ESG expertise.
0: Absolutely. So as you mentioned, Candream manages um, over $150 billion in largely sustainable assets. And we are one of the boutiques of New York Life Investments, which uh, many of you may already know um, within the United States. You can think about us as being that sustainable expert within the overall nylum organization. And we started out in the sustainable investing space back in 1996, long before the term ESG was coined and long before it became fashionable and now where we are today, even criticized. And we believe that we cannot fully understand an issuer's long-term value without understanding how it manages its ESG risks and opportunities. So we've built out a suite of strategies which leverage ESG information. And we've also built out a team of resources to support the overall investment platform and, of course, these strategies. Today, we have about 25 resources dedicated to ESG in-house. And this has allowed us to develop a proprietary ESG scoring model, which helps us better understand how companies are managing their their ESG risks and opportunities. So I joined the firm about a year ago in the United States to help bring over a lot of our compelling sustainable strategies and our expertise um, to the U.S. market.
2: Okay, so you mentioned ESG now being criticized, and I want to pick up on that particular point, if we just start higher level, and and, and we're jumping right in here, Alexandra, where do you think ESG has gone wrong over the past several years, at least from a perception standpoint? Because when I think about ESG, uh, its roots are obviously grounded in good, right? And I would say, certainly from an investment standpoint, the idea here is clearly to seek uh, better risk-adjusted returns, which that could be said for a lot of different investment approaches, but I don't see those other approaches generating uh, the types of media headlines that ESG does. And so where do you think ESG uh, went wrong and, and how did it become so polarizing?
0: Sure. So I think we're at where we are today, particularly in the United States, because of the fact that ESG is still a, a pretty new industry. So if you just think about uh, the evolution over the last several years, We saw flows in the United States pick up um, beginning in 2019, but really 2020 and 2021 serving as turning points with record flows, double the prior year, and we saw more of an appreciation for the materiality of ESG. That said, because ESG can mean many different things, it's being used as an umbrella term to refer to many different types of investment approaches. So ESG, from my perspective, is really a data input, and it can be utilized to achieve a variety of different outcomes or investment objectives, as well as um, non-financial objectives. And the confusion is coming from the fact that different sides are effectively using the term to refer to all types of ESG investment strategies as being an absolute. So some may think about ESG as excluding huge portions of the universe or certain industries that may not align with their values. Others may be using the ESG as an umbrella term, but using it in a way that refers to thematic investment strategies, say investing only in companies providing solutions to climate while others are purely using ESG data as an input to better understand risks and opportunities, which I think is what ESG was meant for at its core. At the beginning, it was to become a more informed investor, but because it it can be used as an input to achieve these different outcomes, it can get very, very confusing, and it's allowed it it to become political um, here in the United States. I think that's unfortunate, and we need to bring the dialogue back to what it was meant to do to to become more informed investors and to have a more forward-looking understanding of where our issuers are heading.
2: I heard you there. You mentioned ESG being used as an umbrella term. It it sounds like uh, perhaps you're not the biggest fan of the ESG acronym itself. Is that fair? I've heard more and more people say recently that uh, ESG sort of needs a Uh, rebrand. Any thoughts on that?
0: I think we will see some sort of rebrand. From my perspective, it doesn't really matter, matter what the label is. I think right now ESG has kind of <laughs> been the label that's tied to the confusion and the politics and um, in the situation. So we will probably see some sort of an evolution. But we need to be more transparent about what we're using ESG data to achieve and come up with labels that accurately represent what we're using, you know, that input to accomplish. And perhaps it's a few different terms and they shouldn't all be bundled together as they are today.
2: I thought you did a fantastic job of explaining uh, where ESG may have gone wrong over the past few years. But I just want to be clear here. You you mentioned there are different outcomes that ESG can achieve. And so I I just want to make sure I understand how you and Candrium view ESG. Is it to do good for society? Is it for better risk-adjusted returns? Is it both? How do you think ESG should be positioned?
0: Sure. So I think, again, I mentioned this kind of input and output concept, and we at Candrian believe across our asset bases, it should be used as an input to improve risk adjusted returns, to have that more holistic understanding of where our companies are heading. So, for example, if you're a financial services firm, it's quite important about how you manage your human capital. And if your employees are walking out the door, you know, every other day and suing you, that's going to affect your bottom line looking at the social data of a financial services firm can be informative. That's what we think is necessary at the baseline. And without incorporating this information into analysis, we we think that um, you're not doing your fiduciary duty, given that you cannot possibly understand where a company is headed over the long term. Now, this type of integration approach, I would call it, can have some positive environmental and social outcomes associated as a consequence on focusing on companies that are um, maintaining positive ES&G practices, but I wouldn't say it's the main focus. It's more of a byproduct of this approach. But then I also want to be clear to say that this data can absolutely, and we do use it, to achieve positive environmental and social outcomes uh, more intentionally and really to promote a positive change. So we can use the data in thematic strategies, for example, in climate strategies, uh, in more socially oriented strategies to promote, say, gender diversity overall. It can be used to do this, but that doesn't necessarily make sense for all investors across their portfolio. At the baseline, it makes sense from a risk perspective that that can naturally be associated with some natural or, or positive ENS outcomes. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the focus. And then we could dial it up or down depending on what the clients are looking to achieve and what their their overall risk tolerance is, what their investment horizons are, and what their personal values may be. So at the get-go, it's risk and opportunity. Over the longer term, depending on the client need, it can be used to do more and to do good for society.
2: Obviously, to achieve those things, and you've alluded to this several times, at the, the core of this is ESG data. And I know this is something that Candrium focuses on. But it's also an area in ESG data that I think there's a lot of debate and confusion. And I'll use the cliche example of a company like Tesla, where you'll have one ESG ratings agency rate Tesla very highly, another one very poorly. It may be included or excluded in a particular ESG index. I think we've even seen uh, Tesla's Elon Musk tweet about this, right? So I'm just curious, (laughs) can you talk about the importance of the ESG data and, and good ESG data in particular?
0: Absolutely. So it's all about data, but you need to be, A, having access to quite a lot of data, just as every investor um, needs to have access to, to have a good understanding of their issuers. But then it's also having an understanding about how to interpret that data. We can all you know, pay for Bloomberg access or, say, subscribe to an ESG data provider like an MSCI or a Sustainalytics. Those are the two biggest today. Um, and just to give you an idea, the correlation between MSCI and Sustainalytics, ESG scores are still pretty low, about a 0.4 or so. However, that's not enough, from my perspective, to be able to really reap the benefits that ESG can provide from a risk and opportunity perspective. You must be able to interpret that data and understand where materiality lies in terms of risks and opportunities across various sectors and industries. So, for example, at Candrium, um, we subscribe to over ten different data providers, and we look at thousands of different ESG KPIs, depending on the industry that we're look, the industry that we're looking to understand, and the company that we're analyzing, and you know where it falls within that respective industry. That's where the benefits come in. So, it takes a bit more expertise than just looking at the data. It's how do you interpret it in, in order to understand what's actually going to impact your bottom line in terms of risk? And then from an opportunity standpoint, I've been mentioning quite a bit, and I think this is one of the areas that gets lost in the space today, is that it's not just about avoiding risk, but it's about finding the companies that are pivoting their businesses to contribute and also capitalize on structural sustainability trends. So you mentioned Tesla. That's a great example, and that's one that, you know, depending on who's scoring that company, it will either be, you know, looked at as a strong ESG company or a very poor one. To break that down, Tesla, from a operational ESG risk perspective, it doesn't look so attractive. It has a lot of governance risks. It has a, a lot of risks tied to human capital. However, when you look at the opportunity piece and the transition to a lower-carbon economy contribution in terms of being an innovator in the EV space, that's huge. And that, from our perspective, outweighs, at this stage in the game, any of those negative um, operational risks. Now, we want to see improvements, but from a net perspective, we would say that Tesla um, is positive from an ESG vantage point, and you may find it in some of our sustainable portfolios, given the fact that it's contributing to the transition and will likely also benefit from more demand in the future as people move from traditional vehicles um, to electric vehicles.
2: Okay, so that was an excellent uh, explanation. And you may have actually answered a question that I always have here. But because I like to play devil's advocate, I'm going to ask you anyways. And it's this that one of the pushbacks I've always had regarding ESG data is that I feel like every active manager is looking at this because we're talking about some of the most talented and diligent investors in the world It's why it's so hard to outperform consistently because you have all these talented active managers in my opinion you know sifting through every data point of every company and so the question that i would ask you is why wouldn't those managers be looking at all of the risk factors and all of the opportunities for a company whether it's esg related or, or not. That's something that I, I just can't get my head around, you know, which is why active managers who are tasked with knowing everything about a, a company would ignore ESG factors. But in the explanation you just gave, maybe you answered it, which is that maybe they are looking at this data, but it's their interpretation of that data that is lacking. It, it, do, do I have that right? Or is there more to it than that?
0: Um, I would say that, that doesn't represent the overall picture, but it's interesting because I think the industry is evolving. So to your point, as investors, we want to you know, have all of the information that's going to be relevant to an issuer and how it's going to perform over the long run to not be blindsided uh, by any potential risk. However, and, and more and more over time, we are seeing fundamental investors consider ESG data alongside traditional data. I think that the overall institutional investor community does believe that ESG factors matter. However, it's still in progress. Not every investor is understanding the materiality behind es information, especially because some of it is still quite hard to measure. So if you think about the social side of things, um, there are not a lot of metrics to show and to prove how much this data matters. We have more anecdotal evidence as the industry is new. So it takes someone with quite a lot of expertise to understand how to fit in the ESG data alongside that traditional data to have a clear understanding of where a company is heading. Again, over time, I think this will happen, but we're still in transition. So an ESG manager who's thinking about integrating um, ESG information to mitigate risks and capitalize on opportunities can really be more forward-looking than many of their peers. So just to give you an example, um, we at Candram. Obviously, do this, and have have been able to note Credit Suisse as having some substantial ESG risks going back to 2014. So, back in 2014, Credit Suisse was charged for helping Americans evade taxes, and then from there on, there were numerous scandals around bribery cor- bribery and corruption, and then even a data breach in 2022 um, where the company disclosed. Th- uh, customer accounts of more than 1,000 uh, different customers, which also exposed that these accounts were tied to assets from illegal activities. We felt that this this overall situation pointed to a lack of, of governance structure, which would result to more and more business risks down the road. We think about governance being as the glue to hold a, a business together. And obviously, that was not happening. So, Credit twist was not found in our portfolios because of this ESG overlay. And we know that in many of our peers' portfolios, you may have seen exposure to credit Suisse. So it's just having that more forward-looking lens. It's certainly not a crystal ball. We can't predict every issue, um, but it just gives you a more clear understanding and a better understanding uh, of where your companies are heading. So over the long term, I think it will become table stakes. But right now, we're still going through that evolution, and there's a lot of value that can be had from integrating um, ESG information and from having that that historical expertise in the space.
2: Well, let me ask you this, and maybe this is asking the same question in a different way. So I just came at it from the angle of active managers. Uh, And by the way, I know regular listeners have heard me give this example before, but I I do think it's relevant to our discussion here today. Um, So, Alexandra, I've always said that financial markets – are a natural ESG screener. And very simply, the way that I explain that is that uh, over time, companies who aren't doing the right things according to society standards, whatever those are in aggregate, those companies are gonna see that reflected in their stock prices, or vice versa, right? Companies doing the right things, we'll, we'll see that reflected. And I always <laughs> use the the same, you know, I, I, I'm full of cliche examples, but I, I'll use the cliche example of Facebook. and. The, the way that I look at that is if society as a whole has issues with Facebook's data privacy issues, they'll stop using Facebook. Facebook's profits theoretically would go down in that scenario, and that would be reflected in Facebook's stock price. And so if you just think about this high level, Facebook would naturally become a smaller holding in any index and as and part of the market overall. And so my mm-hmm. overarching idea here is just that you know, I believe we always progress as a society. And, you know, as a whole, society will determine what's right and what's wrong, again, in aggregate, and I would argue that the financial markets reflect that. So a- any thoughts on my theory, I guess, is your Credit Suisse example, the, the counter to, to my little theory there? Or, or ha- ha- what, what do you think about that?
0: I think that over the long run, that's, that's correct, except that I think that we may not the markets may not reflect all of the information that's out there today and where these companies are heading in the future. So to the point of just having that more forward looking exposure, I think that by looking at all of this ESG data today, we can have a greater sense of what society may dictate within the future. So, you know, perhaps that, could, that happens with Facebook over time, but we as an investor, and that's a great example because Facebook is a name where we've seen ESG risks for many, many years, um, can have a a sense of what's going to happen over the longer term. So again, it's just kind of being that one step ahead of what the market might be showing today versus what the market might be showing tomorrow. Again, it's not a perfect crystal ball. It's just having that more forward-looking lens. And I also think it allows you to get in a bit earlier in terms of the opportunity side of things. So if you're seeing a um, so if you, if you go back to the automobile sector of the market, Tesla has obviously benefited from being the first to enter the market and to being that, that golden standard in terms of EV providers, and, and many companies have copycatted and joined in and as we continue to transition. The earlier you started to transition your business as an automobile provider, say, you know, more on the traditional side, the more likely you are to benefit um, from the, the increased demand and the upside that comes from the opportunity. But if we as investors can see that transition, say from a company um, committing to quite a bit of research and development to develop electric vehicles and to commit CapEx to transition the business today, we can invest where right now that might be not, may not be reflected in the valuation where we see the stock today. But in the future, that company is likely to benefit from quite a lot of price appreciation as the business transition and as the business benefits from ongoing demand for EVs. If that makes
2: sense, it makes perfect sense. I mean, really, that's that's the most common counter I hear to my little theory, and I, I think you'll appreciate this. I'll hear people say, like, you know, look, it's no different than if you're say a value investor or mm-hmm. a growth investor that you are trying to use that forward-looking lens, be a little early to the market and so you know what's different with ESG so i no i think that's a it's a good response this is one i'm going to continue to uh, to mull over and i i've said this before i mean in general i do think the markets are pretty efficient, but you know we can look at the move I, even here recently in the stock price of something like Nvidia and question just how efficient uh, you know prices move. But uh, in any event, uh, I mentioned at the top, Candrium strategies do underpin two index IQ ETFs, uh, ticker symbols IQSU and IQSI. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about those underlying strategies? And I'd be curious specifically about how you think they're differentiated from other uh, ESG approaches that are out there?
0: Absolutely, so to create those, um, those underlying strategies, we leverage that proprietary scoring model that I've been discussing throughout and I mentioned at the start. So we wanna better understand how companies are managing their ESG risks as it relates to the operational quality and then capitalizing on opportunities tied to structural sustainability changes, be it climate change, say resource depletion, we're running out of water, Um, a trend towards increased health and wellness. Now, we can leverage the scores that the model provides to create strategies which look to invest in companies that are doing the best amongst their sector peers. So at its basis, the model spits out absolute ESG scores. So how a company is managing its absolute ESG risks and opportunities, meaning that an information technology company is held the same standard as, say, a consumer discretionary company is in terms of absolute risk and opportunity. That's what we want to understand as investors. However, in order to provide clients with broad-based exposure and to not take huge sector bets for our core allocation, we've created strategies that provide exposure to U.S. large caps as well as to ex-U.S. Um, developed markets leveraging these ESG scores, but adjusting them from a sector perspective. So focusing on the companies that are managing their risks and opportunities within the top 70% of their industry or sector peers. So you're not going to, say, see a zero weight to energy or a huge overweight information technology, because you're going to find the best amongst the sectors. This allows you to have that traditional Um, big-bucket exposure to either U.S. or ex-U.S. developed markets, but benefiting from that more forward-looking approach that our uh, model allows us to have.
2: And I think I know the answer to this, but in terms of the underlying strategy and the ESG framework that's applied, is it the same uh, between large-cap U.S. and then developed markets ex-U.S.? Is it pretty much the same strategy, just different investment universes?
0: Exactly. It's the same strategy. So that model that I've been referring to and that those scores that it generates inform every single thing that we do at Candrium, and then it's utilized in different ways. So we want to apply it to U.S. We want to apply it to XUS. It's going to be leveraging that same score and that same proprietary scoring system uh, as a result. Both focus on the best in class 70% amongst their uh, sector or industry peers.
2: Alexandra, more broadly, how do you think ESG should be used in a portfolio? Is it an all or nothing approach, like uh, either an entire portfolio should be ESG aware or ESG focused, or is it okay to take satellite positions? Because it's always seemed a a little bit odd to me if investors only allocate, say, a a small portion of their portfolios to ESG strategies while holding non-ESG strategies. It's sort of like, what's the point? But maybe I'm not thinking about that correctly.
0: Sure. So this is actually one of the most common, I think, topics of conversation that I'm having is as more investors begin to believe in ESG materiality and want to begin incorporating into their portfolios, they feel, do I need to overhaul everything I'm doing to have a a 100% overall ESG portfolio? From my standpoint, there's not really a right or a wrong way to do this, and it can be an evolution. And it can depend on what your your objectives are as a long-term investor. So it can be used as a satellite. Perhaps there's a particular sustainable theme that you believe in and you want to invest in. You think it's going to be growth oriented. Again, climate is a popular one. We can utilize that as a carve out satellite exposure. Or perhaps you want to start to transition your portfolio, but only find ESG strategies that you feel are compelling for U.S. large cap equities you can replace one of your building blocks with an ESG strategy. And then as you find other strategies for the other core building blocks, you can start to replace them over time. It doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing approach, and you'll start to reap the benefits of ESG um, just from incorporating it in pieces of the portfolio. I also see uh, some financial advisors take the approach where some clients want to invest just as they always have. They keep their traditional portfolios. But they have clients who want 100% ESG solution, so have created side-by-side model portfolios where they have 100% ESG solutions, which mirror a lot of the the same building blocks that their traditional model may have had. So I don't think that there has to be one way of going about this, just as the ESG term can be used to to match with a variety of different investment approaches, it can can make sense in in a variety of different portfolio applications.
2: Sort of related here, and just a couple of minutes left, but uh, I I wanted to get your quick take on something we saw last week. And I'm I'm guessing you saw this, but State Street announced they're offering investors the opportunity to select how they wish to have uh, proxies voted. And we've seen this from several other larger asset uh, managers where they're essentially offering investors at least some power or some discretion and how underlying shares are voted on and we don't have to get into the weeds here. I'm just curious whether you have any quick thoughts on that. Is that a good thing? And going back to what we were just talking about, you know, could that be used uh, in lieu of investing in ESG products because then investors can actually have a say on, on how these underlying shares are voted? Is it not an either or thing? Just, just what are your high level thoughts on an approach like that?
0: I think it's not an either or thing. So Historically, our business has always, um, for the most part, allowed institutional investors to vote their own proxies or have custom voting um, in place with mandates, but it was not necessarily something that was broadly available um, on, the, on the retail and wealth management side of things. So I think it's a, a positive that we're moving in the direction, we're offering choice, and we're also offering transparency. I think transparency is the most important thing here because we as an investors are trying to... Um, promote long-term shareholder value in a transparent way that aligns with what our clients are looking to achieve. So that's important. But I would say that there should be a bit of caution around this because when you hire um, an investor, you are hiring them for their expertise. And part of that, I would say, comes with the stewardship and the voting of proxies. And you should select an asset manager or an investor who's going to invest your assets including the voting piece in a way that aligns with your personal views and the investor is likely the, the one to have the insight and understanding to material ESG issues and which ones are important and how to vote on those particular issues in order to enhance long-term shareholder value so it should be about enhancing that long-term shareholder value and your your institutional investor may be the best party to, to promote that long-term shareholder value. The second piece of that is also if we are voting in many different ways across one asset manager, we're diluting the power of the asset manager, which some may feel is a good thing. But again, if you're hiring them as an expert and they feel that there's a material governance risk and you sitting at a home may disagree or may not be aware um, that this risk exists, the institutional manager no longer has as much power to move the needle and to address perhaps the potential governance risk as it relates to the composition of the board, for example, or to the compensation of the board, for example. So you don't want to lose that lever um, by d- diluting the voting power at the asset management level. So no. I think
2: there's a- yeah, no, I think that's extremely well s- stated. And I'll just go back to your first point. You know, look, it takes work. To vote proxies in the sense that if, you, if you're going to educate yourself on these different topics, you have to put in the time, you have to understand them. And I do wonder how many, uh, you know, end investors will actually go through that and understand the different proposals. Like I think with State Street, there's five different uh, sort of voting frameworks that you can select is somebody going to take the time and go through all five of those voting frameworks and understand the, the nuances uh, there? I I think that's a, it's a real question. And then the other thing is, I just wonder how many investors in general will actually uh, just take the time to go vote period. Right. That it's always easier to do nothing whether right or wrong.
0: Absolutely. It will be an interesting uh, period of transitions to see uh, how much, um, investors adapt, you know, the power of choice and how this impacts um, proxy voting overall for the industry.
2: No, for sure. Well, Alexandra, uh, excellent perspective this week. As I mentioned, ESG is always one of my favorite topics. Uh, I do continue to try to educate myself in this space and and hopefully listeners as well. Really enjoy the uh, conversation. Thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you so much, Nate. Really enjoyed the conversation as well and appreciate the time today. Have a good one. Thank you
2: that was alexandra russo head of esg client portfolio management for the us with candrium that'll do it for this week's etf prime i want to thank one of our sponsors amplify etfs if you would like to learn more about amplify etfs you can visit amplifyetfs.com next week i'll be joined by nasdaq's allison doyle we're going to look at what's been hot recently in the world of etfs from her perspective she of course does have a front row seat there at NASDAQ, and then Sal Esposito, head of ETF products at Zacks Investment Management, will spotlight the Zacks Earnings Consistent Portfolio ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.